0: Hey guys, welcome to today's podcast. I am here with Robert um, and I'm going to have him explain more about himself, but he does a lot of great things and investing in general, but specifically real estate. And that's why I'm having him on this podcast today. Anyways, welcome, Robert. Please tell them more about yourself, kind of give them a brief overview of yourself and what you do.
1: Yeah, Austin, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. There's a lot of different things I guess I could say to explain myself, but I guess the most important things are that I host A podcast. It has two different segments. One's about stock investing called millennial investing and the other is about real estate and that is called Real Estate 101. I just recently quit the corporate world. I retired from the corporate world on my 26th birthday about three or four months ago. I podcast full-time now. I do some consulting on the side and I also invest in real estate as well.
0: Awesome. Yeah, so um what exactly I know so your so I I know a bit about your background cuz I've done some research on you. But explain to, to to everyone what your background is and how that kind of got you started into the investing world.
1: Yeah, so I originally if we go way back, my background was originally in racing motocross. I was raced my whole time growing up. I had no intentions of ever going to college or anything like that. No one in my family had ever been to school. Nobody had ever invested or done anything. So, and I was pretty good at racing. I was really close to going professional. So I didn't really need to worry about college or anything like that. And then my freshman year of high school, I was forced to stop racing just about a year and a half, two years before I could actually turn pro. And so at that point I needed to figure out, well, what am I going to do with my life? And I stumbled onto Warren Buffett, ended up becoming a super nerd on studying investing in Warren Buffett and everything related to it. And so I got super interested in the stock market, everything that came along with that. I always had an interest for real estate, but I never thought that I could do it. I always thought that I had to be a multimillionaire or billionaire to be involved in real estate. Most people that you hear about that are in real estate seem really, really wealthy. So I thought that I didn't have what it took to become a real estate investor. Fast forward a few years when I was in college I basically realized I stumbled into becoming a real estate investor by accident realized that I actually could and you know here we are today
0: that's awesome. Yeah, I mean that's a great story. Like I, I don't. I mean I know there's been studies that have been done on this, but a lot of the best investors come from a sports background because of their competitive nature, the way that they train and study, and that just carries well into investing, regardless of what type of uh, of investing you're doing, whether that's real estate or stocks, whatever. Um, but explain to me what what got you into the stock into the stock market? Like you watched Warren Buffett, and you just like how did that happen cuz most people they know that the stock market exists but it, it it they don't think it's for them they don't think they're smart enough or something like that but what was that thing that kind of pulled you into
1: it so for me what happened was i needed to find something that i wanted to study in school i was a freshman i knew i had some time but i wanted to kind of figure it out and i was always really good at math and i always liked money so i figured well you know, finance, investing. It's kind of the combination of the two, math and money. So why don't I start to look into that? So I did. And I actually was scrolling through Facebook when I found a Facebook ad for a day trader who sells a get rich quick scheme, basically promises you to get rich overnight by trading penny stocks. And, you know, being a 14 year old kid, this really, really spoke to me. I was like, awesome. This is it. I'm going to be rich tomorrow. And I won't even have to worry about college. And so I started to research him and his programs, and I'm not sure why, but I just realized that it wasn't realistic, and I, I knew something was off. Mm-hmm. And just through studying him, I obviously got into other realist or other stock investing strategies. And if you're studying stock investing, you can't not stumble onto Warren Buffett. That's and, so, so true. <laughs> and so it just kind of happened. I f- stumbled onto Warren Buffett, and he has a quote basically. That says that, you know, once you learn about value investing, you either get it or you don't. And it's fine if you don't, but if it does, if you do get it, you get it. And it just sticks with you. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was just one of those things that kind of stuck. And I've just been super passionate about it ever since.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I love hearing that story because I think that's what like my journey as well. Like it started off when I was just doing some research, and then you can't help but find those guys on YouTube. Um, I know who you're talking about, but we'll try to keep his name out for now. Um, anyways, uh going into the real estate, you know, you mentioned how like you thought it was for like a multi-mill like you had to be super rich or you had to have a lot of money to get into the real, into the real estate game. So what kind of led to that mind shift um, change where you were like, okay, I think I can actually get in into this. Like, what was the time frame? What were you going through and what happened to get you
1: into the real estate world? So what happened was as I fast forward a few years from my high school days to college, as I was a freshman in college, as I was starting that year, my dad sat me down and basically told me. When you graduate college, if you're still living at home, you're gonna to have to pay me rent. And I thought that was fair. You know, I didn't. I didn't really think there was anything wrong with that. But I didn't want to do it. And so I basically said, okay, well, I'm gonna buy a house when I graduate, so I'm not gonna to have to pay you any rent. As soon as I graduate, I'm gonna buy a house and I'm moving there, and then I'm not gonna to have to pay you any rent. Yeah. And he hadn't owned his. First, he didn't buy his first house until he was in his 40s, I believe. And yeah. most people in my family hadn't owned a house. Nobody went to college, so nobody had really in expectations of this. So everybody thought I was crazy. Friends, family, everybody thought I was nuts. And I said, no, I'm going to do it. And so throughout college, I worked a ton mm-hmm. and just saved up as much money as I could. And ultimately, it wasn't as much as I thought I would need. And so I ended up buying my first house. It was a townhouse in during my senior year of college before I walked at my college graduation. And so I lived there for maybe a month or two. And I realized that it had two bedrooms. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I didn't even open the second bedroom door probably the whole time since I lived there. So I was like, well, it's kind of wasted space. I should probably do something with that. And so I ended up renting out that bedroom for about 700 or $750 a month. And my all-in cost with the mortgage insurance taxes, HOA fee, everything included was $1,100 a month. Okay. So now I'm living for like $300, 350 a month. Like It wasn't... A lot of money. So I was like, okay, well, this is pretty sweet. And so then I realized, well, I'm not that smart. So I can't be the first person that's ever done this. Like somebody had to have done this before me. And so I looked it up and turns out it's a, it's an investing strategy called house hacking. And there's a whole name for it. There's a ton of people that do it. And back then that was probably I graduated college in 2016. So this is around 2016. So five years ago, It wasn't as popular as it is today, but it still was around. And that basically shattered every limiting belief that I had because when I realized that it was a real estate investing strategy, one, I realized you're already an investor. And two, it also opened me up to this community of like almost underground community where it's not all these rich, famous people that you hear about on the internet, but it's all these regular, everyday people that own real estate that are actually doing what I want to do. And they're no different than me. And so basically that told myself that these people are no more skilled or different than I am. And if they can do it, I can do it too. And that really just shattered every limiting belief that I had and really got me started.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And it sounds like you were doing something like Airbnb before that was even a thing, um, which is really cool. No, but yeah, I mean, I really love that story. And I hope that people listening actually hear that because I know a lot of my audience is a lot of single men who um, are probably in that same stage of life that, that you were in. And so because of that, they can see, okay, yeah, a house can lead to other types of opportunities if you play your cards right. And so I don't want to discount those who have a family um, who's like, oh man, I need a lot of money to get started. But there always are options options to get started in real estate investing. You don't have to go buy a whole apartment complex or anything like that. And so that's a very great story. Um, Anyway, so moving on now, what does your real estate portfolio consist of now? Do you have a bunch of homes? Do you have apartments? Or do you just do a bunch of house hacking type stuff now? So where are you at now and how, how did you get there?
1: Yeah. So right now, currently I own a house hack, which is a duplex. So there's two units here. I live in one unit. I rent out the other and then i own four single family rentals in texas and okay. that is what my portfolio currently looks like so those th- four down there one we bought just as a traditional rental and then the other three we bought as a what they call a burr and okay. so those will be traditional rentals as well
0: yeah so i mean i know a bit about that burr strategy but explain it quickly like a brief overview of of what that strategy is
1: yeah so burr stands for buy Rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. And so basically, what you're doing is you're buying a property that needs some work, you're doing some rehab to it, and then you're renting it out once it's all fixed up. And then you can go to a lender and refinance the original loan that you had to typically get it at a higher price because you've done some work to it and now it's rented out. And then you get ideally all your money back and then you repeat the process and do it again. And so that's what I've done with three of the properties. One of them I was able to get for $0 down through this process. So, a lot of people think you need 20, 25% down. Mm-hmm. That's not always the case. I was able to get it for $0 down. A couple the other two weren't quite $0 down. We definitely are leaving some money in those deals, but one of them I think we're leaving $3,000 in the deal. So, I think we're leaving about 3% in total, maybe 5%. And then the other one is roughly the same. So, It's not always a a super home run with 0% down, but there are still ways to get into deals with even lower than 5%, 10% down.
0: Yeah, I mean, so I'm going to have to ask, I'm going to play the dumb card here. How exactly uh, did you go through to get these houses for almost zero down?
1: So basically, we'll walk through the first example where I got it for zero down. So what happened, and these are going to be round numbers. I have all the specific numbers on my Instagram if people want to check it out, but these are, are round numbers to go through the conversation. But basically what happened is we bought the property for $70,000 and we negotiated for the seller to put in a new HVAC system. So heating and air conditioning. So they paid for that. And then we put in about $5,000 to put in fix some siding, do a little bit of landscaping, fix a little bit of issues with some fencing around the yard, and then also put in new windows throughout the whole house. And then once we did that, we got it reappraised and now it appraised for $93,000. Mm-hmm. So we bought it for seventy. dollars We put in $5,000 ourselves in cash. We had about a little less than $2,000 in closing costs. So we were totally into this deal. Purchase price $70,000 plus $2,000 for closing cost mm-hmm. plus $5,000 for repairs. We're into this deal for $77,000. Now, when you refinance, we got it appraised for $93,000 and we were able to get a loan for 85% of that. Mm -hmm. 85% of that is $79,000. So $79,000 for the new loan pays off the original loan plus anything that we put in and we're left for that deal with $0 down.
0: That's an amazing strategy. Yeah, that's definitely like an awesome thing that a lot of people don't think about. But yeah, I mean, that's a great strategy. Thanks for explaining it. Um, I know it helps for me, but also I know that my people would have hated me if I didn't ask that question. Um, (laughs) um, So let's, let's just go through. I mean, I know you explained it well in my standards but um let's just say a normal person um let's say they just graduated college let's say they have ten thousand dollars and they want to get into the real and into the real estate game and world what would be your step-by-step guide for them like what would you recommend they do first should they buy a house for themselves and do a house hacking type thing should they go and try to do a burst strat strategy what what do you recommend
1: I think house hacking is easily the right answer. House hacking is hands down, number one, the first thing everybody should consider when they're getting into real estate. There's so many reasons for that, but one, it's because it requires the least amount of money down. So typically, because you're buying it as an owner occupied, you're able to get it for 35 to 5% down, Mm -hmm. which that's very hard to beat. You're getting 30-year loans at a fixed rate that are typically very, very competitive. So on my house hack that I just bought a couple months ago I was able to lock in 30 year fixed debt at 2.25% which oh, is great. incredibly low when you get into traditional rentals and burrs and you know these more investment type properties the interest rates and the debt's not as great the terms aren't as long the interest rates are a little bit higher so that's a huge benefit of house hacking is you're able to get better financing with lower money down If you're a a veteran, you're even able to get 0% down as well. So that's a great way. Second, you're able to reduce your largest living expense. For most people, your biggest expense is your house or where you live, whether it's rent, mortgage, whatever that might be. You're typically able to reduce that usually to sometimes free. And sometimes you can even make money depending on how good of a deal you're able to find. I have to pay about $650 a month still on my house hack but if I didn't it would be $2000. So I'm saving about $1400 a month by house hacking. And then third, some people call it landlording light, some people call it landlording with training wheels, whatever you want to call it, you're able to learn how to be a landlord and how to own rental properties with from relatively easy perspective because you just have one unit that you're handling, maybe two depending on the type of property you buy, sometimes three if you buy a fourplex, but for the most part, you're starting out very small, one unit, one tenant, one unit to manage. And it's basically just a great way to get your feet wet and learn how to understand and manage rental properties.
0: Yeah, no, that's definitely a great approach. Like that's something that I think like myself should do, but everyone, um, if they have the means, especially when they're just starting to buy a place to do that. But my next question would be um, with that, would you recommend a duplex? I assume that would, that would be best. Or can you do that with a a normal house as well in today's market, like you did when you first started?
1: Like a single family? Mm -hmm. So you can do it with a single family. It's a little bit different because... When you buy a single family house, you can rent out the bedrooms and you can collect that income and reduce your expenses. And that's totally a, a good way to do it. But one of the problems is with financing on that, you typically can't include the rent that you'll get for those bedrooms. So when I bought that place and I kind of fell into being house hacking, I, didn't, I, I was qualified for that mortgage on my own without any rental income considered. But when I bought this house hack, or if you buy a house hack and you have separate units, the lender will take into consideration the income that you're able to receive from those additional units. So typically you can buy a little bit bigger property if you have multiple units because you have your income as well as the rental income to help qualify you for that loan. Lenders don't consider rental income from bedrooms when you're buying a single family house. And also... I don't know necessarily how it works exactly from a tax perspective, but I believe there are tax differences as well when you're buying a single family house, because as of right now, I own a duplex. I can depreciate half of this building because half of the units are Mm -hmm. rentals, half aren't. So I can depreciate half the building. I can also basically if there's any landscaping that has to be done to the house, half of it's for a rental, half of it's for my house. So I can write off half of the expenses for the landscaping, if I buy a lawnmower, a snowblower, anything like that, that's all half tax deductible because it's half for a rental, half for my property. I don't believe that's necessarily the case with single families if you rent out the rooms. So keep that in mind. Yeah. But if you buy a three or four bedroom house and it's $1,500 a month and you're able to rent three bedrooms of the four for $700 a month, you're making $2,100 a month. Yeah. Your mortgage is only $1,500 and you're actually making $600 a month. So there are pluses and minuses to each. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, that's really cool about you explaining about how Um, the duplex works, how you can actually calculate what rent should be, and then you can kind of apply that to your payments. And that's really cool because like, I didn't know that was a thing, but that can definitely help you buy more of a house. Or let's say you you can afford a duplex, it may help you buy a triplex or maybe something even bigger, not that you want to go that big on your first house hack. But that's really cool that you're able to kind of offset that. Now, in regards to offsetting and taking deductions and expenses, um, do you do that as a sole proprietor Or do you set up a certain business entity to do that?
1: Yeah, through your house hack, you don't need any business entity. You just, it's on your schedule E through your tax return. So you just file with all the income and all the expenses. You can, what I do is I track it as, like I have an accounting software and I track that property or that unit by itself as its own like business, but it's not really a business entity legally. It's just how I track it in the software. And then when it comes time to do taxes, you just schedule you just file your schedule E with your tax return, list the income, all your expenses, depreciation, etc. And it's just handled on your schedule E. That seems so easy. <laughs> yeah, it's easy enough. People often overcomplicate it with legal entities and things like that, but with House hacks specifically, you don't need an LLC. When you get into rental properties, you could make an argument that you do or don't need them. But for house hacks, it's generally, it, it doesn't make sense to have an LLC. Mm-hmm.
0: And so did renting ever scare you at first? Like I'm um, letting this person take over the house. They're going to they're gonna trash it. Or did you like, no, this is, is going to be a good experience. And what was the outcome?
1: <laughs> <laughs> when I was first house hacking or buying rentals?
0: let's say first house hacking and then we'll go to buy rentals.
1: So I really, I mean, I was so young when I did house hacking that I didn't really even consider it. I was like 2021. 20, I knew I took care of places. I probably was naive and ignorant to be honest with you and just assumed that this other person would as well. Mm-hmm. And I think I got lucky because they did, they actually worked night shift and oh, nice. I worked days. So I never saw him and he was relatively clean and again, I didn't know what I was doing. So I didn't know what I was doing wrong. I didn't have any like rental agreements or leases or anything. I barely screened them the way I should. So I had no idea what I was doing and it just happened to work out for me. When I actually started buying real rentals, I was a little bit worried about it because I actually understood what could happen and kind of how it all worked. I knew what I was doing a little bit more. But then again, if you screen your tenants, which just means you go through the applicants that you get and you look at all the details of what they put on their application. And if you're relatively strict with that, then you tend to get a little bit higher quality tenants and then you don't really have to worry about them destroying the property. Mm-hmm. And it also comes back to the type of properties you're buying. If you're buying good properties in good areas that aren't necessarily the cheapest to rent, but they're also, not, they don't have to be the most expensive either. Mm-hmm. Then you're typically going to get a little bit better tenant base. And so when I went into this, I knew I was buying a great property in a good area with good schools. I knew I had strict screening criteria. So I wasn't really super concerned because I knew I was getting a, a relatively quality tenant.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I love how you mentioned the first person was lucky. And like, it's weird how much like luck plays into the first of everything. Like on the first stock, people tend to make money. On the first house, it tends to go well. And then it like baits you in and now now you're hooked. Um, But then it's cool how we learn over time. Anyways, I want to eventually get more into your knowledge on stocks. But before I do, um, is there any question that you uh, wish I would have asked on real estate before we move on?
1: I think the biggest thing is just to learn how to analyze a deal. You don't need to know all the specifics, all the ins and outs. If you're not a numbers person, then that's okay. But at least understand what it takes to get into a deal. I think a lot of times people think they need a lot more money than they do. Mm -hmm. I bought my first deal with less than $10,000 and all my rentals haven't taken a lot of money to get in. So I think analyzing deals is the biggest key to being successful in real estate.
0: Mm-hmm. And when you mean by that, you mean like location, rehab costs, all in, like you just looking at the numbers or what actually goes into that?
1: Yeah. So you don't necessarily know how, need to know how to calculate rehab costs because I don't do a ton of rehab. I do a little bit, but not a lot. But it, even just, you know, finding out exactly what rents are going to be, what is your mortgage going to cost? What is your water and sewer going to be if you have to pay that? What is electricity? What are what are you going to set aside for reserves? And then from there, do these lead to a net cash flow number that you're happy with that is giving you a return percentage, what we call cash on cash return that you're happy with and satisfied with?
0: Yeah. And before we move on, what do you think your cash on cash return should be like? What are you aiming for?
1: Everybody has a different benchmark. For me, if it's not over 20%, I'm typically not really interested. Okay. And you have to to couple that with uh, cash flow per door on a monthly basis. So I need to get at least $200 a month per door and it needs to be a 20% cash on cash.
0: Okay. And what helped you define that system? Is that just something that you came up with and it worked or something you've seen works well over
1: time? Just kind of something that I came up with and I was comfortable with. It's You just kind of as you do it a little bit more, you just kind of learn like, yeah, I'm not really happy with 15% because I know if if I require 15% or 20, let's say 20%, if my, my benchmark is 20, if I require 20% and this on paper looks like it hits 20%, if something goes a little bit wrong and I'm being at least conservative with my return numbers, then okay, maybe I'll earn 15%, 16%, maybe 14% a little bit lower than I wanted, but I suppose it's it's acceptable. But if you set your benchmark at 15, and then you're analyzing this deal, what we call underwriting, this deal to 15%, and then you're off or you're wrong a little bit on something, and your returns actually end up being lower. Now you're in the 10% range, 8% range. At that point, I'm like, yeah, I, I wouldn't do that deal for that price. So it's not really worth it. So for me, I like to it's kind of building in a margin of safety. You know, It's kind of this concept that I took from from stock investing.
0: Yeah, I was about to say, it sounds like you're talking about the value investing where you have that line, which is your value. And then you have above and below is kind of like, hey, this is a great buy. And this is not. So that's a great tra- transition into stock. So we talked about you got into the stock world when you were really young, um, then day trading ish, and then you moved into value investing. And so explain how. Uh, so what did you go to to learn about value investing? Did you research Buffett? Did you read bio- biographies? What exactly did you do there?
1: Yeah, thankfully I didn't actually participate in any day trading. I, I was sucked into the program, but I didn't spend any money on it. I didn't do any day trading itself. I just I learned quickly enough that it wasn't for me, and thankfully I didn't spend or lose any money on that.
0: So, did you paper trade, or did you just like, oh no? That's I didn't do
1: anything. <laughs> yeah, I didn't do anything. I just realized at first I was interested. I you know I took part. I mean, I didn't, thankfully I didn't really have the money at the time. I was a 14 year old kid, so I couldn't buy his course or programs or whatever he had. So I just kind of looked into the free stuff you know, I probably would have saved up the money and bought the courses and and things of that nature, but I realized that it it just wasn't right. And so then I started to read about Warren Buffett. I actually went out to Berkshire Hathaway's annual meeting out in Omaha. I've basically just read every Warren Buffett book I can find. I have a pretty big personal library downstairs Mm -hmm. and you name it, I pretty much own it. If it's a Warren Buffett related book, you know, all all the most popular ones, but started with the Intelligent Investor, Security Analysis, Warren Buffett's Interpretation of Financial Statements, Snowball. I mean, there there are tons of them. And basically, that was my resource. And that's how I started was through the books. And also, funny enough, there was a podcast about four or five years ago called We Study Billionaires. At the time, it was called The Investor's Podcast. And they were the first value investing podcast. And they studied Warren Buffett and value investing I had never listened to any podcast at the time and I just stumbled onto that one and I started listening to it and they, so I learned a ton, an absolute ton from those guys in that show. And then they gave me more books to read. So I've read all those books as well. And then funny enough, fast forward six, seven years, my podcast is uh, partnered with uh, that podcast that I first listened to back in the day.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, that's a great accomplishment, right? To see you, your p- progress grow. Um, anyways, before we get into it, just quickly explain what value investing is for those who don't know.
1: Value investing, to define it simply, basically just means you're buying an asset for less than what it's worth. And there's a lot more nuance to that. Some people would argue you have to have... There's so many different things that could go into it. But basically, it, it's simple core Value investing is buying an asset that is worth more than you're paying for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: So I know that a bunch of people use a different, like a lot, there are so many ways to count to calculate value. Which ways do you use and which way I guess is your favorite? Like, I guess I would assume you have tried a bunch and why did you decide on the one that you now use?
1: When I first started investing and becoming a value investor, I made a big mistake, and that was only using a discounted cash flow model. Basically, what I did was I looked at the financial statements. I plugged in my assumptions into the DCF model, mm-hmm. which is relatively simple to do. And I figured, well, if it says it's undervalued, then it must be undervalued. I'll buy this stock and I'll have great returns. And I'm the next Warren Buffett. Yeah. And what I quickly learned were a few things. One, just because I have an assumption, just because I one of the biggest impacts of a DCF model is the input assumptions that you have and specifically the growth rate. Yeah. And so if I think a company is going to grow at 10% over the next 10 years, just because I think that's true, has that does not mean it's going to happen. And if that doesn't happen, or if the market doesn't agree with me, then that doesn't mean what I think the value is, is actually true. And yeah. so that ended up happening was the market never agreed with me. I was very overly optimistic with my growth rates. So I thought everything was undervalued. And I was really buying overvalued companies. And the other piece I was doing was I kept buying falling knives. So things would be, they would look cheap and because they would have have gone down a lot recently. And the reason I would buy falling knives is because I wasn't looking at the business itself. I wasn't looking at the actual qualitative pieces of the business. I wasn't looking at where the business was going. I only was looking at the numbers. And so typically before a company falls off, it has decent numbers. And then it kind of just continues to fall and fall and fall. Mm-hmm. And so that's what would happen with me was I'd buy these companies that they had their stock price had fallen a bunch because yeah. the market knew that something was bad going on with the business or the industry, but it hadn't caught up in the numbers yet. And I was analyzing it on past data, which is not indicative of future performance. Yep. And so to me, the company looked undervalued and I'd buy it and the stock would continue to fall and fall and fall.
0: Yeah, do you off the top of your head have a sock that you remember you bought that was a no-go? Or, okay.
1: No so- unfortunately, I don't. I, I could probably go I do kind of wish I knew um, but I, I can't think of any now. They were all small caps. Yeah. I could probably go back and find one, but it's, it's been a while.
0: And I assume you were focusing on small caps because of money wise like right? It was like what you could afford at the time or were you just going there because you thought that that nobody else was in those or knew about those stocks?
1: No, it wasn't really the money piece because back then I actually owned a little bit of Apple as well. So like you could buy, this is before fractional shares, but even major companies we know today weren't as expensive as they are now. So I could technically afford them. I couldn't buy hundred shares, but I could buy a couple of shares. So it wasn't really the prices of the stocks. It was more that I felt like going into small caps, there was less competition. I thought I'd be able to find something that other people hadn't seen yet. Yeah, that
0: yeah, that makes sense. Um, so you're using this model, and you started uh, obviously a long time ago, and I assume you would believe in compound interest. Um, and so, what would you, what has been, if you're okay with sharing, like the average return that you've seen with value investing compared to, let's say, the S and P five hundred or the overall market.
1: So it's hard to say. I know a lot of people will say that data data shows that value has underperformed the S&P 500 significantly over the last decade. I don't necessarily think I fall into that camp because over the last 5 years or so I've really had a realization that I was going about value investing wrong. Mm-hmm. So we just talked about those mistakes that I was making and I realized that and so I've kind of come to realize that investing is about buying an asset that's undervalued. And something can be undervalued for a million different reasons. It doesn't have to be evident in his financial statements. It could be the CEO is super talented and that value that he brings or she brings to the company isn't shown in the stock price yet. Maybe I know an industry or business better than most people do because I have experience in that industry. So I know a certain piece of technology that they have or something they have going is helping them and that's not going to be in their financial statements. So there's a lot of different things that can go into it. And I basically realized that there's a lot of value that comes from non-quantitative or non-financial data, brand, value, types, the products and services they're providing. There's a lot of things that, that come into it. So when I was a value investor before and I was making mistakes, I was only looking at financial statements. Now I actually look at the products and services that they're providing. And so I don't know if you'd necessarily define me as a you know quant value guy like you would have back in the day, but I still am looking to only buy things that are undervalued. And I've heard people recently say, isn't all investing value investing because doesn't everybody want to buy something that's undervalued? Nobody wants to pay more for something than it's worth. And so for me, that's kind of how I've been approaching it. I don't know if I'll fall into that value camp per se, but I still am analyzing companies and making sure that I'm buying something that I believe is personally undervalued. And this is not investing advice, but one of those companies, just to kind of clarify the example, is is Mm -hmm. Square. Yeah. And I've been buying Square since the 40s uh, price range, and today it's up in like close to 300, 270, 250 range, Mm -hmm. and so. That's not to say I'm super smart or anything, but back when it was cheaper, the fundamentals didn't necessarily make it look super cheap. But when you consider the technology and a lot of the other things that the business has going on, I could tell that it seemed to me that it was undervalued at that price. And so I was willing to buy it. But most most people would consider that a growth company. But for me, I saw it as a value play.
0: Yeah. And so a question that I do have to ask now, because you brought up Square, is is there a point when a stock price gets too high that you want to sell it because it's no longer has enough value or you've been in it so long that you're okay holding it longer? You know, like what is there a cutoff point or are you just there to hold indefinitely?
1: No, I hold indefinitely. So originally I did what you said first is that if I thought a stock was overvalued, I would sell it, buy it back later when I thought it was undervalued again. And then I had a conversation with a a guy named Brian Feraldi on my podcast, and I've learned from him throughout the years, and he's really changed my philosophy. And so, basically, what he talks about, and I'm going to paraphrase his philosophy here, but basically, if a stock is able to earn a higher percentage in my portfolio because it's done so well, I'm not going to sell that company. So, I basically look at portfolio allocation on a cost basis, and I don't look at it at a current value basis because I don't, if, if, it's earned, if it's earned that spot in my portfolio, then I'm not going to trim it. And so the guys at The Motley Fool have really drilled into my head this idea of letting your winners run and adding to your winners. And so that's kind of more of the philosophy I follow now. So I sell more and only if the business has changed. So if I believe there's been a massive shift in the business or the industry, or I think that something is going wrong with that, my uh, initial thesis, then I will sell, but I don't sell just because I think it's overvalued. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a great point. Um, And also there's many tax benefits that go along with that, right? Like when you hold longer than a year, then you get those uh, decreased tax. Um, Also, Regarding dividends, this is a question that I have to ask because I have a lot of people who ask, hey, I should buy this stock because it's the highest paying dividend stock. And again, I have my answer for it, but I would assume I want to hear your answer. Should you be buying a stock based on a dividend only? And if so, um, I mean, if, well, in addition, uh, is dividends something that you factor in to your analysis? And if so, how much does it affect your stock picking?
1: In my opinion, you should not buy a stock solely based on its dividend yield. Yeah. One, the biggest reason for that is because if, if the yield is super high, typically that's an indicator of some underlying issue. Typically, if the yield is very high, then the stock recently fell significantly because the yield is a operation of the price mm-hmm. of the stock. And so if that's the case, there's probably a reason why that stock fell and now the dividend yield is so high. And that could lead to underlying issues in the business. And so, yeah, you know, maybe you buy a dividend yield of 10%, which is incredibly high. But what happens if that stock loses 25% over the next year? Well, now you're just, you're net negative 15% at least. And then what if it loses another 25% the next year? So you need to look at also the appreciation of the stock. Mm -hmm. Whereas you could have bought something that had no dividend, but if it went up 5%, you're positive. So it's kind of this appreciation versus dividend type approach. You need to consider both. And uh, typically speaking, a high dividend yield of that, like that significantly high of a dividend yield is indicative of poor performance of the business or underlying issues of the business. Mm -hmm. Now, the second piece to that is if there is underlying issues with the business, they might not be able to sustain that dividend. So they might have to cut the dividend. And now the dividend yield comes down even more, not because of the stock price, but now because the business can't afford to actually pay out the dividend. Yeah. And so in that, that's another factor that you need to consider. Now, for me, approaching dividends, I don't I don't pay it any attention okay. at all. If a company pays dividends, like I'll buy a company if I think it's undervalued. And if it happens to pay a dividend, great. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't, then that's fine too. I typically don't look to the stock market for cash flow. Typically, if I'm looking for cash flow, I'm looking to invest in real estate. And if I'm looking for appreciation, I typically focus more on the stock market.
0: Yeah, smart. Yeah, no, I mean, that's what I mentioned a lot is like a dividend should be a cherry on top, not what you go for. Um, Anyways, the next question that I really want to ask is how long does it take you to analyze one stock?
1: Depends on the industry. So okay. if it's an industry or or business model that... So if it's a business model that's easy to understand, it takes significantly less time than a model that's harder to understand. If it's in an industry that I understand well, and I already kind of know, then that makes it even quicker. But if I'm analyzing a very complex business in a complex industry with a lot of moving parts, then that's going to take longer. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, I'm able to make an investment decision with four to 10 hours of analysis time. That's awesome. If not less.
0: Yeah, I mean, oh, well, I mean, that's what I wanted to hear because a lot because a lot of people just see something on stock Twitch or something on Twitter and then they go buy it, right? And they're or they invest ten minutes into research and then they're like, oh my gosh, I did way too much. I guess this is a good stock, but no, you're like you need to put in the time. So that's what I wanted to hear you say that like you need to put in the time, and especially the ones that are taking you less time is because before you put in time to understand that sector or that industry, so that's starting to, to that knowledge is starting to compound for you and help you out. Um, so that's awesome. Uh, Um, so I guess my next question would be, um, we kind of, we kind of covered your philosophy on real estate and stocks, but before we get done with stocks, um, is there a question or something that you want to mention on stocks before we move on?
1: I think the biggest thing is don't follow somebody else into a stock pick. It doesn't matter if it's Warren Buffett, the mailman, your mother, your uncle, whoever it is, don't follow anybody into a stock pick. There's so many different reasons as to why, but the biggest thing is you don't understand why they're buying what they're buying. Maybe they got a tip from somebody else. And if you don't understand why you're buying what you're buying, you're not going to hold it if it ever falls. And it's going to be very hard to be a successful investor. If you're just trying to clone somebody else's picks.
0: Completely agree. Um, Anyways, uh, Robert, it's been great to have you on this podcast. I've learned a lot myself, so I appreciate you coming on here. Uh, but I did want to give you a second to kind of explain what you have going on. Uh, cause people can follow you on Instagram. Your podcast is great. Just get uh, just take a second and explain all that. And I'm pretty sure you have a book coming, right? Or something like that. Anyways, you'll have to explain.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I am considering releasing a book. So I started writing a book last year. I got about one third of the way through it. And, it's a topic I'm passionate about, but I ended up getting sidetracked with other projects. I have a lot of different things going on. And so I recently put out basically a pre-sale. And I said that if enough people buy the book pre-sale, then I'll finish it and I'll actually write it. Because a lot of people over the last two year, 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 year and a half have asked for me to finish the book. Like a lot, a lot of people. So I said, okay, well, now let's run a pre-sale. And if enough people are interested, I'll actually commit the time and I'll invest the time in actually finishing it. And so that's going on right now. I write a newsletter. So I was focused on Instagram, but I decided to shift away from Instagram a little bit. I'm still active there, but more focused on my newsletter because on Instagram, it's really through an algorithm. And if you have 10,000 followers or 100,000 followers, not everybody's going to actually see what you're posting. Whereas with the newsletter, if if somebody follows you, it's probably because they want to get your content. So to me, that doesn't really make a lot of sense as to why that would happen. So with a newsletter, anybody that subscribes to the newsletter gets the newsletter in their inbox. Now, whether they want to read it or not, that's up to them. But at least there's no third-party algorithm in the middle that says you get to see this or you don't. And so I'm putting out all of the same type of content that I would put out on Instagram in my newsletter instead, just as a way so that everybody that wants to actually get the content truly does actually get the content. So you can check that out. It's called theleonardletter.com. That's just theleonardletter.com. You can find me on Instagram. My username is therobertleonard. And then as I mentioned before, I host two podcasts. One is called Millennial Investing and one is called Real Estate 101. You can find either of those podcasts by searching for them in any of your podcast players.
0: Yeah, and we'll put all those links down in the description below, wherever you're listening, YouTube, podcast, wherever. Um, Last thing I wanted to ask is... um, what kind of content gets put in your email newsletter? I know you men- I know you mentioned that you have it, but what exactly goes in there so that people know?
1: Basically, I put anything that will help you invest your time and money better. So, I talk about stock investing, I talk about real estate investing. I just did a post about Dogecoin. <laughs> I talk about uh, sometimes I share different resources that I found. I just started, you know, testing out this DeFi uh, bank account type product, so I shared that with my, my subscribers that they could kind of see, Hey, I'm testing this out. It might be something you're interested in. So basically anything that would help you invest your time or money better. That's what I share.
0: All right. Well, that's awesome. And all those links will be below. Thank you so much for joining us today, Robert. It's been awesome or joining me. I should say, um, I've learned a lot and, uh, I can't wait to start to implement some of this stuff, especially cause I've been interested in getting into real estate myself. Um, yeah, well, thank you. And I guess we'll end it here.
1: Thanks so much for having me. All
0: right. See you.